that's Jason and April Anderson who have been leading us in uh, worship through the month of June and some before that and there'll be some after that. Great job, y'all. Thank you, musicians. Great job. Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote these words in his poem entitled Concord Hymn. By the rude bridge that arched the flood, their flag to April's breeze unfurled. Here once the embattled farmer stood and fired the shot heard round the world. That Concord Hymn poem commemorates what most believe to be the opening salvo of what would come to be called the Revolutionary War in the United States of America, or for the United States of America. And it underscores, that one line underscores for us the reality that life is full of battles, and sometimes the big battles start with just a single shot, the shot heard round the world, he said. Take your Bibles and go with me to the book of Deuteronomy. While we look today at the reality of battles in life, and the way that we should approach them and some principles when we come to war. When I entitled this sermon, This Means War, I was thinking primarily about that old 80s Petra song by the same title, This Means War. And I suspected in a Baptist church that all of us are very familiar with war in the church world, and we'll talk a little bit more of that as we go, but here's the big picture that we need to get. God uses the battles of today to prepare us for the campaigns of tomorrow. We'll flesh that out as we go a little further through this, but as we look into this passage today, we're going to find that there are at least five principles that we draw from this particular passage when it comes to how we approach the battles both in our individual lives and also those uh, of the corporate world that we call the church. So here's the, the first point that I want you to get. It's, it's a little bit of a rehash of a couple of weeks of worth of preaching here. So I'll try to pull it all down into this. But here's the principle first. There is good news that the discipline that we live under uh, has life after that. There is life after discipline. This comes from the last couple of messages as we've seen as we worked our way now deep into chapter 2 of Deuteronomy. It's that point of reference in the life of Moses as he is, I guess some would call it, his swan song. He has led the children of Israel up to the border of the promised land. They're about ready to go across. And when we get to the end of the book, he'll be off the scene. Joshua will be on the scene. And then the next book, the first chapter of the next book of the Bible is Joshua as he begins to take Israel to, to uh, occupy and possess the promised land. But as we saw a couple of weeks ago, God is very clearly giving us individual, specific input, promises, direction for the days of our lives and for those instances that we find ourselves for every season, every day of your life, God has specific input for you as to where he is in the moment and what he wants you to do and how he wants you to be. The corollary that we looked at last week is that we have the real opportunity when God gives us that directive, we have the very real opportunity to deny what he has said to us, to rebel against what he said to us, and just go off and do our own thing. And as we saw with the children of Israel and we see with our own selves, that when we decide that we're not going to be obedient to what God says to us, then we fall under his discipline. And so we pick up, and that, that discipline that we're talking about now gives way to verse 16 
of this particular passage where we read in Deuteronomy 2, verse 16, so as soon as all the men of war had perished and were dead from among the people. Let's stop right there. There's the discipline part. God had said to that group of people, go in, take the promised land. They sent spies in. The spies came back and they said, you know what? It's everything we dreamed it would be. And oh, by the way, they'd be giants over there. And they'd be big cities with big walls. And we are like grasshoppers to them. And we should rethink the whole thing. Does it matter what God had already said? All that mattered was their situational focus. And all they could think about were all the reasons not to do what they were told to do. And so they gave way to that. They gave place to that. And so God says to them in no uncertain terms, this generation must pass away before I can do what I want to do with my people of Israel. So for 38 years, they went back to the wilderness. But then there's verse 16. Verse 16, so as soon as all those men of war had perished and were dead from among them, now verse 17, the Lord said to me, today you are to cross the border of Moab at Ar. After the discipline, God says move. After the discipline, God says, now we get back on track. And so I want to stop here because I, I, there's some elements of this whole discipline thing that I want to make sure that we get before we jump any further. Because when we jump further, we find battles again. So let's make sure that we fight the right battles early on. Here's one of the realities that I find about human nature, especially those who are Christian. And we try to live our lives for the Lord. And yet we find ourselves rebelling and we experience things in our lives. And it's like God. So, Here's a couple of good uh, pieces of information. Two traps that we must avoid. There is that one trap that says, God will never discipline me for my disobedience. Now, you know this trap because you have children who live this trap. My grandson has been at my house for about 24 hours, almost, not quite. And he's almost two years old. You know what I figured out about him? He understands pain. He understands pain when it is applied for disobedience. I watched his mother and his father last night as they were dealing with him. And there were times, I, it's hard to believe that my own grandson would not be perfect. I know it's hard to believe. Stay with me. But I saw a couple of times where Declan was doing fine. His mama or his daddy would tell him to do something or his naughty would tell him to do something and he would do it. And other times he showed that he's got his Uncle Colin in him and he just refused to do what he was told. And that's when I realized he understands pain. Because a little bit of pain applied in the proper way helps a young child to understand that uh, there is a consequence for disobedience, all right? This is a public service announcement to you who are parents, okay? Don't be afraid to practice what I just said with your children. If you're not comfortable practicing that, we have other people in here who like to discipline other people's children. Send them with them for a week. Now, on a serious note, as a parent, and by the way, this is kind of a separate sermon, but you didn't have to pay extra for it today, so I'll give it to you. As a parent... If you do not teach your children that there are consequences for disobedience, you set them up for spiritual problems because God always operates 
from the principle that says, you must obey. If you don't, there are consequences. So part of God's design to teach your children and to be real in the lives of your children is to underscore that truth, that there is a true consequence for disobedience. But one of the traps that we face, and we really have it in spades in our country these days, is, is that idea that says, well, there's, there's really not any consequences out there. I'll, I'll just do what I want to do, and it'll be okay. That's a trap, and it's a lie. And the children of Israel for 38 years wandered around in the wilderness because they thought God would not hold them responsible. But he did. The other trap is on the other side of that whole equation. And that is not so much at the point of God won't hold me responsible. He won't discipline me for my behavior. This trap says God will never forgive me for my disobedience. And Christian churches are full of people who live lives that are laden down with guilt because of a mistake or a series of mistakes somewhere, and even God's own people seem to indicate that there's just no forgiveness, that there is that point where if you do this and you just can't be part of us, don't mistake this. There is forgiveness when you are a child of God. God's design is never to lock you out in the wilderness where there's no hope for you. It's not, it's not his design. Now, he will do that if you let him or if you force his hand, so to speak, uh, by living lives full of disobedience. He will discipline you, but there's life after discipline. A good way to say this is that God is on the move through history. This whole thing, we're just two chapters into the book of Deuteronomy, and this backward look that Moses gives to the children of Israel that's designed to prepare them for the forward move, it's just full of, of the reality that God is on the move. And so we must not get stuck. Don't get stuck because of disobedience and don't get stuck because of you think there's no for forgiveness for you out there. The charge that God gives us in his mission is onward, always onward. So that's the first principle. There's life after discipline. Here's the second one. The second one will give place to three other ones, but here's the second principle basically stated. Uh, on our march to the promised land, it's probably going to involve some battles. In other words, I, I want to attack that theological lie that seems to be out there in some circles these days that says that if you just come to know Jesus and you trust him, that your life will be easy and no problems. You just get hooked up with God's people and you never have another personal relationship problem. Um, theologically, the term for that is bull. Life is not ever going to be all roses with no thorns. It's not going to be that. And the reality is that we will all face in our lives. Some of them we see and we anticipate and some of them hit us upside the head as if we didn't know that it was out there until it's already there in front of us. And when we come to this particular passage, we find as we work our way through now a handful of verses that the promised land and the move to the promised land may well involve battles that we have to fight. We pick up reading in verse 19. And actually, when we go through these first four verses or so, it almost looks like this text is telling us something different than what I just said. Verse 19, and when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon 
as a possession because I have given it to the sons of Lot as a possession. It is also counted as the land of Rephaim. Rephaim formerly lived there, but the Ammonites called them Zamzamim. Now, I just got to tell you, I just read that verse because I love saying Zamzamim. It's a great word. Verse 21, a people great and many and tall as the Anakim, but the Lord destroyed them before the Ammonites, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place, as he did for the people of Esau who live in Seir, when he destroyed the Horites before them, and they dispossessed them and settled in, them, in their place even to this day. As for the Avim, who lived in the villages as far as Gaza, the Kaftarim, who came from Kaftar, destroyed them and settled in their place. And so what it sounds like here as we work through this, that first little output of this, when you approach the people of Ammon, don't harass or contend with them. It sounds like it's going to be battle-free. Okay, we're on the move again, and God has forgiven our sin of our, of our people before us. They've gone on, and so now we can move on. And it sounds like God is saying, I'm going to take you in there. not going to be any fights. It, there's no question. God is clearly moving Israel away from battles in these first few verses. Now, that's good news for some of you. I should say some of us. It's good news to hear that God often moves us away from battles because some of us hate confrontation. I would ask you to show your hands if you're one of those who hates confrontation, but you're probably afraid to raise it up because somebody look at you and they think bad of you. People, some people just avoid confrontation at any cost. I had a, we had a dog like that. My mom did. Uh, <laughs> This dog's name was Minwa. How that dog got that name, I have no idea, but that was the name. This dog was a Pumin. You heard of a Pumin? Half poodle, half human. This dog was a nutcase. Okay? She's actually pretty smart, um, but it was the dog that I grew up with. It was my mom's Pumin. And Minwa loved my mother. And, my, and she loved my mother so much that when we would leave the house for any extended period of time, and while we get all upset about that, and she would do things that were not smart that got her in trouble. Like, for instance, it was not really much of a problem until we learned to do something else about it. We'd walk home uh, and come in the front door. First of all, if Minwa did not meet us at the door, she was in trouble. We knew she was in trouble. She was this, I don't like confrontation kind of a person, a dog, whatever. If, if we were gone long enough, she would get in the trash and just... Just take it all over the house. Just drag it all over the house. One time we came in, she'd gone in the bathroom, and she had gotten a hold of, I would show you how she did it, but you don't want to see that. She would got a hold of somehow the toilet paper hanging off the toilet paper roll and taking it all through the house. Now, that's bad enough. okay? But then she would get on it and just scratch it to the point that it was just shredded in thousands of pieces all over the floor. But if she had done something like that while we were gone, she was nowhere to be seen when we walked in the door. Just because she was going to get beaten. Well, um, excuse me, disciplined. Some of us are exactly like her. We even smell the possibility of a confrontation somewhere, and we head for the hills or a closet, or like she did, go hide under the bed. So we like this part of the passage. Some of us do. Where God says, don't go fight those people. I'm not in it. Don't go fight them. We like that part of it. That disappoints some of the rest of us, though. 
Because some of the rest of us love a good confrontation. I used to play golf with a guy. I probably played several hundred rounds of golf with him over a period of probably five or six years. He was learning how to play golf, which means he was a terrible golfer. And uh, it would take us four hours to play. He'd shoot 130, you know, those high, high numbers. It takes a long time to hit the ball that many times. And so here's the deal. Uh, this guy played football. He was a lineman in high school. I think he played a little football in college. I'm not sure about that. He was a huge, big old, worked for a plumbing company, owned a plumbing company. And so he was, you know, worked with his hands. He was just kind of a man's man kind of guy. And so um, we were playing golf on this one particular day, and we were in the middle of a fairway, and like I said, it takes a long time to hit that many strokes. And so Tracy got up over the ball to hit it. We were in the middle of a fairway. Well, he, he wasn't in the middle. He was off in the weeds, but it was about halfway down the fairway. And he went up to hit it, and as he was just about to hit the ball, a ball came flying in at ankle level and came in and hit him and rolled off just to the side. And he looked up, and the guys behind us, I guess, were tired of waiting. And so they just went ahead and hit, and it hit my friend Tracy. And I thought... Well, this is going to get good now because Tracy's one of those guys that didn't mind confrontation. Before I knew what was going on, I was sitting in the cart because behind him was always the safest place to be when he was in it. And I was sitting in the cart, and when that happened, he grabbed that ball that that guy hit. He jumped in the cart, and we were on our way back to the. He's yelling at him the whole time. And I was glad he was a big guy because it got a little... A little bit testy on the golf course course that day. You know people like that? People who just love a good confrontation? We need to be careful. We who do battle, those of us who don't mind confrontation. I'll flesh that out a little bit as we go. But let me just stop to reiterate this truth. On the way to the promised land, to where God has taken us, to the promises that he's told us individually, us as a church, as we're on the march to get there, there will be battles to fight. But just because there's an enemy out there doesn't mean we have to fight that battle at that time. There are times, though, that God says, okay, fight. Now, that wasn't in verses 19 through 23, but we find it in verse 24 where God says to Moses, who's now reminding the people, Rise up, set out on your journey, and go over the valley of the Arnon. Behold, I have given into your hand Sion, the Amorite king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. Don't miss this. Sometimes there is a fight to fight. But a call to fight is a call to a focused listening for God's voice. We don't just get to haul off and fight any way we want, any time we want, and any place we want. If you're going to be consistent and if you want to walk with God and make sure that you get where you're trying to go to the promises that he has given to you, make sure that you're listening for his voice. How do you know when it's time to fight? In this particular case, we have they're going to the same place, but they have to go through two different people groups. And with one of them, God says, don't fight them. With the other one, he says, get after it. How do you know? How do you know when it's time to fight? For you as an individual, for us as a church, what's the battle we're supposed to fight? The only way we can answer that is if we're listening for the voice of God in the moment. We have to know 
what God is saying specifically in the moment for us because he has a plan for us. And here's the deal with that. God's plan for us is not the only plan that's out there. It's the only right plan for us. But God also has a plan for these other people groups around us, for other things going on. And God is telling them what's right for them at that moment. What I want you to hear from that is that when God begins to work in a situation like that, his work is complex. It's more complex than we can imagine. We think chess and God's working on this 3D chess model where there's multiple boards. God is not just working with you or with me or with this church. He's working with other people and their churches as well. And so when we come to hear what he has to say, we should not just haul off and do something because it seems so right to us. We need to hear what God has to say because there are going to be battles attached to it. And God is working and moving through history. So with that in mind, we get to these other three that grow out of that one principle. Here's the next principle. I've kind of pointed to it already, but let's go ahead and get it where it belongs. And that is you should not go looking for a fight. Now, for some of us, not that big a deal. We're not confrontational people. For others of us, that's a disappointment. Oh, man, I don't get to fight today. I could find one because, I mean, that guy over there, he looks like he needs to get smacked. I know you think that. You just try to be all churchy on me here. Verse 26, listen to what is said here. Because Moses gives us something about strategy now. God's already said, verse 24, this is what I want you to do. You go and do battle with them. Verse 26, Moses gets strategic. So I sent messengers from the wilderness of Kedemoth to Sion, the king of Heshbon, with words of peace. You hear that? With words of peace. God has already said, do battle with him. Moses said, I sent them with words of peace, saying, let me pass through your land. I will go only by the road. I will turn aside neither to the right nor to the left. You shall sell me food for money that I may eat and give me water for money that I may drink. Only let me pass through on foot as the sons of Esau who live in Seir and the Moabites who live in Ard did for me until I go over the Jordan into the land that the Lord our God is giving to us. And with this, we find this push from Moses that says we are going to work towards peace. But we're ready to do battle. We need to hear this internally in our churches, in our lives, in our interpersonal lives. We need to hear this. We may be ready for a fight. Some of us wake up in the morning ready for a fight. Work towards peace. That's what Moses does here. But especially in church. I listened to a podcast not too long ago, and it it included an interview with a guy named Hans Schultze, another great name. Hans Schultze is, uh, I'm not sure about the first name, but I know the last name is right. Uh, He was part of a hotel chain where he kind of went in on the bottom floor, and he started working just as one of the daily help there. And he worked his way up, and so at the time of the podcast, at least, he was the CEO of a hotel group that included the Ritz-Carlton chain. And so, so five-star hotels, and this guy is the top, top guy. And he was talking in this podcast, it was a leadership-oriented podcast, and so he was talking about organizational health and especially organizations that deal with customers. And so the, the translation, I'm going to give you the translation into church world. 
but his point was really tied towards business that also applied to church. Here's what he had to say. There, there are those customers who are out there, and we would call them people who come into our churches. And, and they, the customer comes in and they sample the product, and the determination begins to be made whether or not that's a place that that customer is going to stick around or not within the first 10 seconds. Is this a safe place? Is this a place that's going to meet my needs? Is this a place where the customer matters? And he said there is that one group of people who will come into that organization, and now I'll start pushing it directly into church, who will come into church and they will have an experience in the church that drives them out of the church. And as they go out, he puts a term on them. These are terrorists. Not, not in the term that we find it all over the media these days and ISIS and that kind of stuff, but these are people who come to church, have a bad experience for church, and they leave that church and their discussions with other people are targeted to undermine that organization and that church. One of the things that we have to get, those of us who are fighters, I'll talk more about that in just a second, as Baptists, but we have to understand that when we don't do peace inside the church, anybody who is inside the church for even a short period of time is likely to go outside of that church and just let everybody else know how warlike that church is. And that's not good. Moses moves for peace first. I think I'm on pretty good ground with this whole point in that Jesus himself said in the book of Matthew, if you find that your brother, listen very carefully, if you find that your brother has something against you, you go take up a strategic spot on a roof nearby his house, and when he gets out of his car, you shoot him in the head because he hurt you. Jesus say that? Hello, Y'all need to be listening with both ears here, okay? Because I'm getting ready to tell you, Jesus did not say that. If you're listening out there in the internet land, I know Jesus didn't say that. But many churches, many church people operate as if Jesus did say that. And internally, we give up on peace without even giving it a chance. That sounds like John Lennon. And so people come into our churches and experience war where there should be peace and they leave as terrorists and many of them never go back to Jesus. I think it's important that we get the strategy that Moses is employing here. Moses is concerned about these people because remember it was the previous generation of warriors that God killed off in the wilderness. These, this is the new set of people. And so strategically, he says, work for peace. I would say it this way, as we look internally and the battles that inevitably occur in churches, we need to be peaceful. We need to save a brother, not kill a brother. All right, no amens. Let me keep moving. Here's another principle that grows out of that previous one. We don't need to just fight arbitrarily, but uh, we, we don't need to neglect 
the fight that God ordains. Now I've chosen my words carefully there because ordains is a big word. But the reality is that if we find children of Israel here that God very clearly says to them, I have set up this fight for you. Now that, that gets to some people. Uh, there's a verse that I'm about to read that is really problematic for a lot of people. We probably ought to think about the whole thing with our whole brain and let the Holy Spirit speak to us a little bit about some of it. But, but here, here's what I get, and I'm going to read the verses in just a moment. But here, we just need to know that there are some battles that are worth fighting. Some battles are worth fighting. Dr. Doyle Young was my Baptist history professor. Our lady had him for uh, church history also. And uh, he, he was one of those rare animals in seminary life for me at Southwestern Baptist Seminary. He was a full-time professor teaching church history. He also was a pastor, full-time pastor of a church in Weatherford at the time. And he was a chaplain in the uh, one of the Armed Service Reserve Corps. And so here's a guy who was regularly dealing with preachers and with real people in the local church and with service people. And Dr. Young was an incredible guy. He had a lot of influence on me, even though we didn't have a, like a close relationship. It was just he, he taught me so much. One of the things he did one day, we were in Baptist history class. And if you don't know much about Baptist, here's something you should know. We love the fight. We as Baptists love to fight. We were born out of a fight. And so we started fighting early, and, and the, the history of Baptists across the spectrum of church history is we have gone from one controversy to another. And if we don't have a good fight, we're going to start one because we love fighting. As a matter of fact, Southern Baptist Convention met a couple of weeks ago, and because the fight of the last 20 or 30 years seems to be winding down, um, they decided to start a new fight. And so there's a new controversy on the horizon for Baptists. And uh, so that's just us. And so in this class, Dr. Young was talking to us about Baptists and the fact that we fight all the time, love a good fight. And then he said this, it was towards the end of the class period, and he said this, guys, let me tell you something. Sometimes you draw a line in the sand and you take a stand and you fight and you die if you have to. That's another way of saying some battles you have to fight. And as class wound down, we got to that particular... Okay, let me stop for a second before I give you the rest of what he said. Y'all remember Mr. Miyagi? Mr. Mr. Miyagi was the uh, guy who taught the karate kid how to do his thing, right? And uh, one of the things I remember well, because I, I, mean, I, I related to this. I did not relate to where he kept saying, Daniel, don't fight. Daniel, son, no fight. Daniel, son, no fight. No fight. But then the part that, where he won me over was when he said, if must fight, win. Oh, yeah. Now, I can relate to that. I can relate to that. That's what Dr. Young was saying. Draw a line. Take a stand. Fight. Die if you have to. Some fights or worth fighting, if you're going to fight it, win. That doesn't mean that we get to determine what a win looks like. That's where we get messed up. Sometimes we think we just kill enough people, then we win. If I'm the last guy standing, then I won. Well, not necessarily. As a matter of fact, for those of us who really like to fight, welcome the fight all the time, we need to be really careful about that because we can fight battles that God has nothing to do with.
and we'll feel good about ourselves. Here's the thing that happens with fights like that. Somebody always dies. And God will hold us responsible if we're fighting battles that we're not supposed to fight. But some battles we need to fight. And the battle, the goal of the battle, is the progress. Progress of the kingdom of God. And that's a key factor here. It's not just what I want to see come from it. It's so that God's accomplishments are what we see. So if you're going to be smart, or if you're going to fight, you need to be smart about it. You need to be strategic about it. And so that's where Dr. Young finished his statement. As he finished that first part of it, take a stand, fight, die if necessary, the bell rang, the buzzer actually. And so we were all gathering our stuff, and he said, hold on, hold on, hold on, before you leave. And he started again. Sometimes you draw a line in the sand, and you take a stand, and you fight, and you die if you have to. Just don't draw the line in stupid places. How do you know what's a stupid place? Because there'll be plenty of battles to fight. How do you know? It takes me back to two messages ago that I've hit several times again this morning. It requires that we walk with God on a daily basis. And for six years, that's been my push to us as a church, walk with Jesus. It's not enough to be able to quote Scripture. You need to live Scripture. It's not enough even to be able to live it out. You have to be able to hear what God has to say to you on a daily basis. Jesus did not die just to get you to heaven. He died because there's a better life for us, a daily walk with Him where He informs us about life and He guides us through life and He directs us and He gives us life. So we have to listen to him on a daily basis. But we have to know sometimes he's going to say, fight! Which pushes me to the last of these principles. I don't think I read the verses for that, did I? Let me go back and do that. Verse 30 to finish that thought. But Sion, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him. For the Lord your God hardened his Spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. In other words, they won the battle. Verse 31, And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have begun to give Shiloh and his land over to you. Begin to take possession that they may occupy this land. And then Sion came out against us, he and all of his people, to the battle at Jahaz. And the Lord our God gave him over to us, and we defeated him and his sons and all of his people. And we captured all of his cities at that time and devoted to destruction. Every city, men, women, and children, we left no survivors. That's, that's tough stuff. Only the livestock we took as spoil for ourselves with the plunder of the cities that we captured from Aurora, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and from the city that is in the valley, as far as Gilead, there was not a city too high for us. Don't neglect the fight that God ordains. But the last principle comes from the verse that I skipped. Did anybody notice that I skipped the verse today? I save it for last because I think it's best, at least as far as principles for the battle. Verse 25. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven.'" 
who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. You see the good news for us in this, whether you like to fight or not, the battles are coming. The good news is that when we are following God's command and we are responding to God's directive, the battles that we fight that He ordains for us, we can take it to the bank that He will resource us for the battle. We don't fight battles in our own strength or in our own smarts. None of us are smart enough for that. God's promise to us and His practice with us is that if we are called into a battle that He puts before us, we can be sure, as long as we're obedient to Him, we can be sure that He will resource us in that battle. You notice that verse again? He does things that they could never do on their own. This is psychological warfare at its greatest. God steps into the hearts and to the thinking of those other people and he begins to impress upon them just how hopeless it is for them to fight against God's people. I've seen this a hundred times through the years in churches where we gear up for a battle inside a church that needs to be fought. And God steps in a way and in a time that's perfect. And it's not something that could have been done on our own. God resources you for your battles and us as a church for our battles. So the rule of thumb is if the battle is the Lord, so are the resources. Which all pushes us back to the need for us to walk with him. I'll finish the whole message Musicians can come on up, but I finished the whole message, the last part of verse 36, where Moses says, The Lord our God gave all into our hands. If the battle is his and the resources are his, then it only makes sense to say that the victory is his. It's not ours. I've been through enough battles in my life individually and inside churches. I don't like battles. I don't mind fighting. You just need to know I don't fight fair. And I don't make I don't make apologies for that. Because I grew up winning. You, you, you win a battle. Okay, but I don't like, I, I do fight fair, just so you know. Uh, I just don't want to. The Lord put a wife in my life who helps me not act on the things I want to do sometimes. You know, through all of this, this whole discussion of battle, we need to ask the question and get to some kind of a good answer about why. Why is it necessary for battles? Well, first of all, biblically speaking, we fight an enemy who is unseen. Ephesians talks about that. We fight not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This is, this is not a fair fight. So part of the reason that we do that is because it's there and it's, we're, we're part of a grand scheme here. But for the children of Israel, and I think for them especially as it comes back to us, I, I think there's something we have to get here. Why did they need to go through this? Why, why did they need to go through these battles? These are people who had been slaves. And they've been wandering in the wilderness, and God's already promised to promise land to them. Why, why can't they just go in and take possession of it? 
And the answer to that is, hear me very carefully. i go back to where I started the whole message today. The battles of today prepare us for the campaigns of tomorrow. This, we don't just have one battle in front of us. We have a series of battles in front of us. As a church, we have things on the horizon for us that we will look at that and go, that's a battle. Huh? I don't know about that. And so how we handle the battle today equips us to hear the voice of God and to see the hand of God and to watch the victory of God as he prepares us for those later campaigns today is important. So the question that I have as we close for you today, I want you to just bow your heads if you will. And let's go in time of prayer as we move into the invitation time. Three simple questions for you. First of all, what is your battle today? Nearly every one of us came in here with some kind of a battle that we're fighting. Maybe it's on an interpersonal level or financial level or any number of other options. What is your battle today? And then the next question is, where is God in that? Is it possible that God might have brought you to this point in that battle just so that he could sit back, take his hand off of you, and laugh when you go down in flames? That's not how God deals with us. Where is God in your battle? And how are you fighting it? Have you taken it to God and said, okay, God, this I, gotta, I need help with this. Father, we ask you to help us to be really honest right now. And those things that are gnawing on us, the things that are eating our lunch, the things that make us mad about our situation, the things that have paralyzed us, help us to see them for what they are. These are battles that push us to the definitive point of asking, do I really believe God cares? For those battles that you put in our way, those seen and those, those yet to be seen, we ask that you would show yourself to be mighty God. In Jesus' name, amen.